Please join me in 2 Peter chapter number 2, and we are going to go all the way back to verse 4 in order to get our context clearly anchored in the text of Peter's writings here. Uh, we're not going to go in detail like we did last session on all of this, but we do need to understand the importance of this great, big, long, run-on sentence uh, that Peter is developing here uh, as he's preparing his readers to deal with false teachers in their midst. Uh, the church suffers from pressure coming from the outside, persecution. But it suffers a whole lot more when we have false teachers morphing and manipulating things from the inside. The worst things that have ever happened to Christ church have happened from inside, from troublemaking false teachers. I would stand by that assertion. And so Peter wants his readers to understand God will deal with these false teachers, and therefore you must not cave to their manipulations. And he gives examples, all of them from the book of Genesis, because uh, Peter is Jewish. A lot of the people he's writing to are Jewish. Uh, the Gentiles that he's writing to are believers in Jesus and have basically been grafted into the tree of Israel. And therefore, uh, Genesis has become part of their, their spiritual heritage. And so they're probably uh, being taught uh, all the basics of the book of Genesis in their churches. And so he wants to give foundational examples of how God doesn't let false teaching and misbehavior of authority figures get away with it. He doesn't necessarily take care of it right away. That's true. But they will be kept on God's judgment agenda schedule. Verse 4 of 2 Peter 2, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, that's Genesis chapter 6, but cast them into hell, or Tartarus, which is basically the pit that we see in the book of Revelation. Uh, it's the temporary housing point for these fallen angels. Uh, they will eventually be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, which is also referred to as hell. So he cast them into Tartarus and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So he's got them on file. He's got them reserved for eventual judgment. Verse 5, if he did not spare the ancient world, that is the world before the flood, but he preserved Noah, a herald or preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And 
if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. So again, another couple of examples from the book of Genesis of God's judgment on false leadership and false authority. If he rescued righteous Lot, just like he rescued Noah, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. It's interesting that we're supposed to identify with that feeling of Lot, uh, that we are living in this fallen world, and we are surrounded by sinful activity of all sorts of levels. Now, in Sodom and Gomorrah, it was really bad. And so there are certainly some Christians that live in those worst circumstances, and they grieve over the the things that they're seeing around themselves. Uh, but I would remind you of 1 Corinthians 10.13's promise that no temptation, no time of testing has come upon you except that which is common to all mankind. So these are all the norms of sinful activity, uh, the temptation to engage in sinful activity. Uh, they are not beyond resisting, though. So, nothing has happened, nothing's being tempted to you except that which is common to all mankind, and God is faithful. That means he can be trusted in that he will not allow you to be tempted or tempted beyond what you are able, but with that temptation or that testing period will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So I, I really want to anchor that on what Peter's writing here regarding Lot's situation. Lot had opportunities to deal with all of that sinful pressure that was around him. One of them would have been he could have moved. He really could have, but he chose not to. Uh, but uh, the point that Peter's bringing out here is that God is aware of everything that's going on and the situations everybody find themselves in. And this verse 9 is the point of Peter's bringing all of this up. Verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, so he knows how to give them a way of escape that they may be able to endure it, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so God is also completely capable of how people and angels should be judged for what they're doing. Sometimes he brings the judgment heavy and hard right now. And other times he postpones it. And, you know, sometimes the delay of God in judgment, uh, we are told, uh, is a matter of 
looking for repentance for some of these folks. And so God is fully aware of what needs to happen, how it needs to happen, for how long it needs to happen, and eventually he will get around to judging or rescuing everyone, depending on their needed circumstance. Uh, Verse 10, he says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. And that's where we wrapped up last session, is that he wants to focus in on those that go crazy with fleshly desires, you know, just let their bodies run wild, which was one of the things these false teachers were teaching. We know that because uh, the book that quotes and alludes to Second Peter a few years later is the book of Jude. And uh, he starts it off by saying, I was going to write to you about the common salvation that we share, but I feel the need to tell you that you've got to defend the once-for-all faith that saints have been given because we've got these teachers that are being licentious. That's a fancy word for they want to make excuses for people to do whatever they feel like doing. And then later, uh, 1 John will make the same point, is that there's this false teaching out there that you can do anything, and it's not sin. And that's just sinful. And Peter and the other apostles are trying to lay the Holy Spirit groundwork here that that's not acceptable. And the other part of it is despising authority. Not not paying attention to uh, God's designated leadership in the church who are supposed to be godly men, or even paying attention to what's going on in the spirit world. We'll see that in a little bit. Uh, Here he now starts engaging in descriptors of these false teachers he has in mind. So here's the bad guys as described by Peter, and it matches a lot of the stuff we've seen about the bad guys in other passages. Bold and willful. So they, they just feel like they can do anything they want to. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They don't even think twice about saying nasty things to and about those in leadership. Uh, And even leadership in the angelic world. Now, one of the things that Uh, Jude will do. He's the author of the book that is alluding back to Peter's second letter. Uh, He's the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, The thing that Jude does is he even gives an example of how these bad guys would even say nasty things regarding Satan as if they have control over Satan. And even the other angels know that they don't get to boss Satan around. 
And, and this is one of the things I think we, we Christians today need to be more careful about this, is you can't make Satan and his, his fallen angels into some sort of joke, because they are not. They are exceptionally dangerous spiritual criminals. They have been at this for thousands of years. They do not like humanity. They took up that attitude at the very beginning. They're in the Garden of Eden against Adam and Eve, and their attitude against Adam and Eve's kids has not changed. And so these entities are not jokes, and they are not to be messed around with. And so people who flippantly um, act as if they can take Satan on themselves, they are not paying attention to books like Jude and Second Peter. And so some people have this um, deliverance ministry that they do. Uh, and... Um, I have to say that some of them come off as if they think they are more powerful than these demonic entities. Now, some of them will say, well, I'm only doing it by the power of Jesus Christ. Well, you say that, but, you know, that could be just conning. That could be just... Uh, putting on a show because we have an example in the book of Acts where the seven sons of the high priest Chiva, uh, they were known for casting out demons with power words. And what they did was they collected what they thought were new power words. And that was the name of Jesus and the name of Paul. And they came across a demoniac and they said, we order you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to come out of that person. And they were doing this in order to make a buck or a denarius. Uh, and the demonic being replied back, I know Jesus, and I'm aware of who Paul is. Who are you? And then proceeded to use the human uh, host to beat these guys up and uh, send them out of the house with their clothing torn, bleeding. That's what I'm talking about here, is that some of these modern deliverance people are just the modern sons of Sceva who are playing around in very dangerous things just to make a buck, just to make uh, a name for themselves, where they have no business messing around in. And we've got to convince people to take this stuff much more seriously. I have come across at least one person that I wondered whether they were demon-possessed. And I'm telling you, I got extra prayed up when dealing with that person because I knew that's dangerous stuff right there. Very dangerous. Uh, when I was... Um, a teenager, I helped uh, in junior church, 
And we used to have this little uh, song that we like to sing with the kids. And it kind of made fun of Satan a little bit. Uh, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. Well, you know, as I've grown up and been more studied in the scripture, like passages like this, I now shudder that we were encouraging kids to think of the devil as a, a jokes, as something to be joked about. He is not. He is dangerous and should be regarded with a healthy respect as a criminal of the spirit world. Okay? Have I, have I impressed this upon you enough that you should take this seriously? Okay? So, false teachers, Peter says, they are bold, they are willful, they don't tremble, that is, they don't get scared in a respectful fashion as they blaspheme the glorious ones, uh, the demonic world, the satanic world, whereas angels, so now we're talking about the good angels, angels like Michael, the archangel who is mentioned in Jude's letter later, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, that is, greater in might or power than us, we humans, because remember, we are told that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels whenever he was made as a human being, as he came into his incarnation. Because angelic beings, even though they are the servant class of God's universe, are very powerful. They are able to pass from their, um, their realm their spiritual realm into our realm and back again. Uh, and they seem to have, uh, well, they, they live for eternity, so they don't have death the way that we think of it. And um, we know that just one angel was able to take out uh, 187,000 soldiers in a few hours. So, they are serious, seriously powerful beings. So, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Uh, so, even God's angels don't treat the fallen angels in a flippant, flippant and disrespectful fashion. They take them seriously. Again, in the book of Jude that we'll eventually come to, uh, Jude says that uh, Michael the archangel said to Satan on one occasion, the Lord rebuke you. So he didn't use his own authority, even though he, Michael, is an archangel, uh, apparently the top of the angelic structure. He didn't use his own authority, but rather just repeated the authority of God. So that's what Peter's getting at here, is that these, these bad teachers in the church of the first century were thinking that they were 
able to boss fallen angels around and treat them with contempt. And that's not good. Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, that is, animals that don't think like human beings, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. So he's, he's thinking about the wild animal kingdom, that uh, the only way that many of these people thought about them is that they were just f- food on the hoof. Uh, they were just running around out there until uh, you grabbed them and, and turned them into dinner. He says, these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. So these guys are like animals. They don't really think things through. They just mouth off. They talk about things that they don't know about. They blaspheme uh, angelic beings when they don't really understand the circumstances. And Peter's just saying, this is, not, this is not a good group. They will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So it will all catch up with them unless they repent, which, of course, Peter would want them to do. God would want them to do. We should want them to do. A little bit more about them. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. So they are not just partiers at night. They party in the day. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Now the wording here may in fact be a reference to the love banquets of the early first century church, the agape feast, if you will. It would appear that from its very earliest history, the church would just simply come together to worship. They came together also to eat together. Uh, These fellowship meals appear to have happened every single week. And they were special family meals. And it was more than likely during these special family meals that uh, the leadership would then um, remind everybody of the death of Jesus Christ. And so communion, uh, that is the bread and the cup, uh, were part of the ceremony of the meal. Peter says, these guys are like stains on the dinner table of your agape feast. They are bringing trash to the table. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. See, it gets back to their their desires. You know, they see a woman that they'd like to sleep with. Doesn't matter that they're already married. Let's just do it insatiable for sin. So they have no limits. They can't seem to be filled up with sinfulness. They entice unsteady souls. So they take advantage of the weak, of the uncertain, of the confused. 
And so we all know that these are the folks in the church that are the easiest to be taken advantage of. And that's one of the reasons that you need to have top-notch people in leadership that won't take advantage of them and that will, in fact, try to protect people that are in those circumstances. But Peter says, these guys don't. Uh, Their hearts, they have hearts trained in greed. So they're wanting to line their pockets. Accursed children. You get this sense here that Peter doesn't approve of these guys in one tiny little bit, does he? Uh, Paul is very blatant in his feelings about such false teachers. And we should be quite upfront about it. These guys are nothing but trouble. And they need to be taken out of leadership. And they need to be really uh, pressured into repenting because apparently they are lost. Uh, Church discipline really needs to be taken against uh, people that are being described here. Now, we've only got a couple of minutes left. And so I don't know that we'll be able to get fully through this example that he uses next. Uh, Verse 15, forsaking the right way. Now remember, in in the beginning of the Jewish church, the church was known as the way. So forsaking the right way, these guys have gone astray. So they've gone into a counterfeit church. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. Now, his story can be found over in excuse me, Numbers chapter 22. Let me shortcut it for you uh, today, and then we'll come back tomorrow and, and maybe even um, go a little bit more into detail with it. Balaam seems to have been a genuine prophet of the true and living God and was successful and beneficial in that service. But then when the Israelis were getting ready to move into the promised land, they were camping out in the land of Moab. And the king of Moab was threatened by their presence. Even though they were not planning on staying in Moab, he was threatened by their presence. And so he didn't figure he could take them on physically. So he decided to hire a spiritual uh, hitman that would put the curse of God on the people of Israel uh, so that they would not prosper. And so the king of Moab uh, went out and figured out that Balaam was quite renowned for such things, and he tried to hire him. Come back tomorrow, and we'll tell more of that story.